welcome to Weekday Worship. Weekday Worship! I don't know what that was. That I apologize was, uh, already for it. It was a bark slash, uh, I don't know, uh, a little soulful preaching. <laughs> I, I honestly don't even know. It was a, it was mis- an ex- it was it was a misstep. It was, it was a mistake. A, it was an excited <laughs> bark because we're in a new space. We are in a new space again. Yeah. Weekday worship is looking for a, 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 a home. We are, uh, we're a sojourning podcast. Yeah. We have moved out of the Rao Bunker. Um, house is under the, house is under renovation. It's the the walls are literally falling underneath us. Yeah, at the Rowell House, and we're sitting in our church's new space that we're going to be doing ministry and life we, out of. I wish I wish we were doing one of those podcasts that was being video recorded as well right now because I don't think we're at that level. No, we're not. But I'm digging the environment. We've got some yeah. spotlights on our stage. Yeah, we set it up like there's people gym. watching us yeah. right now. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I think there was a van when we pulled up that I think is the air conditioning, like, uh, maintenance contract guy. Uh-huh. So I suspect, like, if you if you have an interruption later, it would be because that guy comes in here. But I think he's probably up on the roof checking units or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, I, what was I, what were we talking about? We're talking about the new space. We're oh, sitting the, in the yeah. new space. I don't know what I was going to say about that, though. There was something that there was something that you said that triggered that, and that's why I'm the host, <laughs> right there. <laughs> Indeed, that's why I keep it Indeed. on track. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're sitting in our new building. Oh, I think I'm hope. Yeah, he's going to walk down at some point. He's going to yeah. be like, "What are these two yahoos doing yeah. on this stage?" They're with playing stage around with light. microphones. <laughs> We've got the old school from the school pipe and drape behind us on the one side. Yep. We've got no audience from the gym, an otherwise dark gym, looking at our lit stage. But we're enjoying our new space. This is the this is a, to my knowledge, this is the first time as a church we have a space that's more than Sunday, right? Yeah. So in the early days, we had a space that we had access to, uh, yeah, at, at some level like this. But yeah. it wasn't. We didn't have like yeah. a lease. It wasn't ours. We shared it. Yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. So we're enjoying um, that space. That hopefully we're going to transition all of our ministry and. Sunday service and everything into in the next month or so. Yeah, man. Super exciting. Can't Very wait. exciting. Yeah. Um, and you announced that on Sunday that the deal yes. was kind of done. Yes. Um, which is exciting. We actually, yeah, we signed the contract last week before, uh, actually after we recorded the podcast last week. Hmm. So on Tuesday. So yeah. Yeah. We're really excited. God's uh, provided this place and yeah. we're, we're looking forward to what's ahead. Yeah. So that made me think of something else on Sunday. Oh boy. I don't think I've ever heard a preacher in the same breath in a sermon <laughs> use the words flint knife, foreskin, and excuse me in the same sentence. <laughs> it's interesting you add the third one in there. I didn't even think about that. You know what was like... Hold on. Just give people context here. Okay. <laughs> you give people context. I will. I will. Give people context. So we're in Acts 16 uh, through our Acts uh, series. And it's the, the part where Paul wants Timothy to be circumcised as a grown man. And James was a great exposition in the sermon, but he went off cuff a little bit. <laughs> I knew he was going off of his notes. And uh, um, he, he started like ad-libbing almost the, the interaction between Paul and Timothy when Paul <laughs> approaches Timothy so this is the James Rao version. This is version. why I manuscript messages. Yes. And so, <laughs> so you he don't start, get things like he this. He starts uh, 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 impersonating Paul and Timothy going back and forth. Yeah, Paul's this, recruitment of Timothy onto his missionary and, team. And uh, James's uh, impersonation of that conversation to Timothy 
went something like this. James is, is saying he's Paul and, and says, Timothy, I'm going to need a flint knife, your foreskin, <laughs> and, uh, and we're going to circumcise you. And then, and then James's words that Timothy said were, excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, the, the disheartening thing is like you kind of go down this road, and I'm thinking in my own mind this is funny, but then everybody's wearing a mask, so yeah. I, I'm kind of like I'm halfway through or I'm somewhere along the way, and yeah. I say flint knife and foreskin, and yeah. I'm thinking people should be laughing at this point, and yeah. it wasn't overly discernible. There was a couple, yeah. but I was kind of thinking there would be more maybe chuckle laughter at the whole thing, yeah, yeah. but... Um, I don't know. Maybe people thought it was funny. Maybe they were horrified. Uh, the masks concealed their reaction yeah. largely. So it was. Uh, let's just say, if I used the words "excuse me" in a sermon at seminary in a preaching lab, that would be a few marks off. For you think sure. so? I think it. I think it would. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to submit that sermon Are to you? to a professor okay. and ask him what he thinks. Cool. We'll see. Yeah. What he hey, says. how do you feel about the? Yeah. Okay. I don't even want to say those words again. <laughs> Well, they're forever on the internet, so. Yeah, they're, they're there. Yeah. Okay, what I'm are we... glad you were paying attention. I, I was. Yeah. That, that woke me up right there. <laughs> Did you laugh? I mean, I chuckled. You were, there was a chuckle? There a Caleb was a chuckle. chuckle? An under-the-breath chuckle? <laughs> because <laughs> because uh, you trying to Im- go back and forth impersonating each... Paul and Timothy? An apostle of the Lord Jesus and, uh, and Timothy. I did it in kind certain. of an informal... It was. 2021 kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. I don't do a lot of that. No, you maybe, don't. Maybe I should not. Maybe I should stay away from it. <laughs> not my strength. <laughs> I, I feel like you're kind of sending a message here, like stay away from the... No, it was just, it was unique. Okay. It was unique for James Rowell in the pulpit. Not unique for this podcast at all. Like that, that's... <laughs> maybe that's what I... That's on start, par for James Rowell on this podcast, I've got to start delineating between that. I've got to start like thinking through, hey, I want to say this, but it's probably not good for Sunday morning. Yeah. I need to mention this to Caleb and bring it up in the pod. <laughs> yeah. The pod notes. Um, All right, what are we talking about? Uh, uh, we're entering into a new topic today. No, we're not. Oh, that's right. It's an old topic. <laughs> Progressive Christianity, our response to um, yeah, our some of the core uh, maybe beliefs. Um, ideas. With, yeah, ideas within Progressive Christianity. So uh, I think two weeks ago we took on primarily the doctrine of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then last week we took on more of the doctrine of atonement and sin. Yeah, uh, and just and, some bigger categories like in some sense. wrath, justice. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. Those and, sorts of uh, things, and we didn't we didn't finish it. We think today's the last one, right? No. Oh, <laughs> I think we'll I, th- I think we'll finish kind of our critique of the of the main doctrines this week, and oh. then give our final thoughts next week. Oh, that would be our that would be my goal. Oh, cool. Here. Okay. But we so we kind of stopped at talking about last week the. Uh, but by the way, if you haven't listened to the previous ones. We did two podcasts on trying to give our explanation of what our best analysis, our, yeah, our best uh, portrayal of what, what James used profile, yeah, of what progressive Christianity is and claims. Um, and so, if you don't know anything about this movement, um, uh, you might want to go back and listen to those before mm-hmm. you listen to any critique of them, so that you have some familiarity with it. Yeah. And so particularly in the episode last week when we got into the atonement, we were talking about, um, how, one, we just surveyed the scriptures a little bit and showed it, it's kind of unavoidable. You can't write it out of scripture uh, as some would like to do. Um, you have to deal with this topic because it's just th- so threaded, uh, threaded throughout the entirety of the Bible being a primary theme uh, culminating in the ministry of Jesus. 
And, uh, and then we kind of ended talking about how sometimes progressives and, and, and even other broader uh, thinkers want to uh, kind of talk, talk about other aspects that were representative within Jesus' death at the expense of the atonement. So we talked about something like oh, yeah. the, the Christus Victor model, which, which uh, is saying that Jesus' death represented uh, his, his conquering over death for, human, for humankind, right. his, his, uh, which obviously culminated in his resurrection. It was, a, it was a conquering of death for humankind. We talked about the moral influence theory where Jesus uh, models for humanity what it's like to respond to violence and oppression. Um, Christus exemplar, right? Is that like Christ as our example kind of idea? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, James and I were both on the same page. All of these ideas, uh, uh, we see those in Scripture. I think those are absolutely 100% there. Yes. Uh, that, that Jesus' death did represent his conquering over death for those 100%. who were in him. <laughs> that he did uh, model what it means to, I mean, he talks about this, uh, you know, being uh, a sheep led to the slaughter and... Um, uh, showing what it means to to uh, to not react in violent ways, like uh, I see all of that. I just I, I cannot understand how that negates or discounts the primary theme of atonement in Jesus's death. Right. You know, like I I can have those and I'd see the the primary uh, motive of of atonement in Christ's death. And what's really interesting about that, I may be skipping ahead to something we could talk about next week. So if you want to stop me somewhere in this thought, feel free. <clears throat> but it does remind me about one of the, I find to be inconsistencies within the progressive movement, progressive Christianity movement, is they talk a lot about how, well, we need to sit in the tension of things, mm -hmm. right? We need to hold ideas together. But then there's an unwillingness to sit within theological tension of, like, they want to they wanna resolve something like the cross with well, it's only this, rather yeah. than sitting in the tension of, no, it's all of these things. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's uh, you know, it's atonement, it's Christ's victory, it's yeah. it's putting forces of darkness to open shame, it's exposing the, yeah. the ultimate defeat of oppressive forces, it's it's Christ as example, or, uh, as example and uh, substitute, and all, all, like, it's, there's so much, like, it's our redeemer, it's our ransom, it's like the cross yeah. represents a whole litany of things theologically and we don't have to choose this over that or this over that mm -hmm. we can we can hold all of those things yeah. together um, and and so I do think one of the um, and I'm gonna elaborate more and, and, and maybe think through next week some of the the other ways in which they they refuse to sit in some of the theological tensions that historic Christianity has sat in yeah um, while claiming that that's a value that they hold yeah and in our position, not, I don't want to rehash what we talked about last week, but our position is not only that the that the uh, the atonement in terms of uh, Jesus being sacrificed for sins and taking upon himself the judicial wrath of God, um, we would see that as the primary primary yes. the primary uh, aspect of, of Jesus' death. It doesn't diminish the other things at all, but I think it makes it the center stone because of the entire Bible's uh, emphasis and focus on this problem for. Yeah. Humanity, along with the kingdom of God and bringing that in, and mm -hmm. Jesus, like I, I can see all of those things. But I think the gemstone, as we talked about last week, yeah. of of Christ's death is the atonement. I, I think you have to start from there, and all of those things kind of surround it. Yeah. Um, but here's here's where I want to go today. <laughs> is there's a couple straw men that I see coming up over and over again in in uh, in dialogue with uh, progressive Christians and how they portray what we're talking about in terms of 
Christ's death on the cross is paying for sins and taking on the the wrath of God um, on behalf of us. Um, and, and evangelicals are are uh, they can paint straw man too. Um, but we're we're pointing out ones that I think are that I think they block the the real uh, issues of the conversation because they sit around some of these straw men. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of them that I've heard over and over again is this idea of divine child abuse. So um, uh, I've heard many progressive Christians frame. The, what Who was the first one to use that phrase? I don't know. Maybe Brian Zond. I, okay. I, I'm not sure. Yeah, but it's off-repeated. Um, yes, it's it's very off-repeated, and it's very it's a big one on on social media kind of portrayals and yeah. dialogue, which is the loveliest place for Christian interaction, huh? But here, here's the idea. It seems to me that they're trying to get across is the way, when when we're talking about Jesus um, being sacrificed for sins and taking on the wrath of God, uh, they portray that as God abusing his child and taking out his wrath on a, an innocent, uh, boy, almost kind of idea. Um, and they call it divine child abuse. And that, and that's how they paint the, what we're talking about here in the atonement. Here's why I think this is a, this is a straw man is the idea of child abuse implies that it was a, it was an adult who is uh, competent and responsible and a child who is uh, not old enough to uh, defend Vulnerable, himself. Weak, uh, was, it, it was against his will, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, he had no choice in the matter. The child had no choice in the matter, that sort of right. thing. The the way that when you read the scriptures and when you read Jesus' even uh, wrestling with what he's about to do, it's clear that Jesus was, uh, he was a grown, <laughs> first of all, he's a grown man <laughs> in human form, right? Right. Uh, and his will was aligned with the father's. Yeah. Their wills were aligned. This was, Jesus did not go into this against his will, forced by the father under some sort of uh, divine child abuse idea. Mm-hmm. This is, this is a, a grown man uh, willingly taking on something uh, that he did not have to. So the idea that, 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 that God forced this on Jesus, and that's what we're portraying in the atonement as a, divine, as a father does on an on a, uh, adolescent, mm-hmm. is just, I don't think it's relevant to what's portrayed in Scripture. No, it's, um, it's absurd. I mean, Jesus himself says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down in my own yeah. accord, right? I mean, yeah. the, the, the whole um, wrestling of Jesus the night before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane was a wrestling of that desire, that human desire to avoid suffering, mm-hmm. uh, confronted by this mm-hmm. eternal counsel of God's will decision yeah. that he would be come himself, the substitutionary sacrifice, uh, for sin and sinners. And, and Jesus is, is battling that human desire to avoid the suffering with that deeper desire to, um, to fulfill this plan yeah. and him ultimately submitting uh, the, the will or subordinating the, the will to, to not go through this to the deeper will. And uh, we all have this, right? Even at our imperfect, sinful human levels, we desire comfort and ease. Um, we don't, we want to avoid suffering, but then sometimes we willingly will endure suffering because we have a deeper desire than that for some 
other or or greater end. And so, um, you know, I mean, I'll I'll use a trivial example. Um, I want to sit on the couch and watch a football game, but uh, let's say my wife wants the lawn to be mowed and some yard work to get done, and so I choose not because my wife is forcing me or coercing me, but because mm-hmm. I love my wife. And uh, I, I want get, to get off the couch and I subordinate my desire to be lazy to my desire to go get some work done and be productive. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's that's just so obvious that we do this in the course of everyday life, that we have competing desires and our greater desire wins out. So Jesus wants yeah. to avoid suffering. The greater desire is redemption, which Paul later describes as for the joy set before him mm-hmm. endured the cross, mm-hmm. scorning its shame. Yeah. So I, ju- I just think this is I don't think it. It's actually an argument that deals with what historic Christianity is saying about the willingness of Jesus mm-hmm. in the atonement, and I think it's, I think it's disrespectful to what we're saying about atonement. Yeah. Um, and even even if you don't agree with Christian historic Christian theology, you have to see the uh, the framing of Jesus. Uh, as God in Christian theology. So historic Christian teaching teaches that that Jesus is fully divine. He's co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. Yeah. And so uh, this idea that Jesus forced on, I mean, that the Father forced Jesus in some way, it goes against any idea of the unity of the Godhead within historic Christianity. Yeah. And so I, I just, I would, if you're a progressive Christian listening to this, I would just urge you, I don't think that actually deals with this problem. And I, and I, if you want to have a serious dialogue about this, I don't think this is the route to go. Yeah. I think that, I think it's a cheap shot that in the same way, I think evangelicals It's not a serious dealing with serious Christianity. I think so. I right. think so. That would be that would be our, our position. Yeah, and I I also think you know you you can even see a picture of this earlier in the scriptures, right? In the story of Abraham, and the sacrificing the would be sacrifice of Isaac, right? And so, um, one of the things we see that's really remarkable and often overlooked in that is we see Abraham's obedience to the Lord, who says that he wants the sacrifice of his son, which it, it seems horrifying at one level, but. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we know is that God ultimately was going to provide the sacrifice. And, but one of the things we see there is the obedience of Isaac. Not the, not the abusiveness of a father who's um, overcut. Like he, there was a son in that story who trusted his dad yeah. and went along with that. And so that's even this early foreshadowing yeah in an imperfect but visible way that would become yeah. ultimate. And we would say work of Christ. The, the, the relationship between the father and son in the Godhead is much even stronger. And right. it, it, it takes that example to a whole nother level. hundred percent. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the second strongman I wanted to, I wanted to hit on is, is another portrayal of, of when people, I think progressive Christian ideas talk about God's wrath. It, it, it seems to me like uh, when they talk about it, they want to paint, uh, uh, this idea of of God's wrath in the way we're talking about as an emotionally angry God who kind of throws temper tantrums. Yeah, he's pretty erratic and yeah, he's moody. unrestrained. Um, that God, he kind of enrages himself at Jesus on the cross in an unrestrained way is what mm-hmm. I think they think we're we're saying. But I don't think this is the vision or the framework the Bible lays out for God's wrath. I, I don't think it is. I think I think if you look from the Old Testament all the way through. Uh, uh, the the idea of God's wrath is is a just holy God dealing with the sin of mankind and the rightful penalty for for such sin through the atoning death of Jesus, and so it's it's not God venting his anger, 
Okay, it's not it's not him venting his anger because progressive Christians take the atonement out of this, this is what they do. They take it out of the judicial category of the Bible frames God's wrath in. Mm. It's a judicial category. It's not an unrestrained, like a reactionary kind of mob justice idea. Mm. And to, it's it's in terms of a law being broken and justice being served in a in a uh, in a way that's controlled and within a judicial framework. And I think that's what gets missed a lot of times. Mm. That God's wrath is always framed in a judicial framework in the same way we would hope, it, in an imperfect way, obviously, but our, we would hope our court system works, mm-hmm. right? Our, our court system and the way we do justice and the way we um, enact in some ways a, a penalty or, or a wrath in some way against a wrongdoing is not, should not be unrestrained and, uh, and emotional and reactionary. No, it goes through a process of judicial consistency um, to enact a punishment. Mm-hmm. And that's the framework of God's wrath in Scripture. Yeah. And so I think putting in this way of God emotionally reacting is not the way in which the Bible talks about wrath at all with God, especially in terms of Jesus' uh, death on the cross. Mm. I, I just think that's a straw man. I, I don't know that it actually deals with the judicial framework of Scripture. Yeah, and another element of this that I think is often overlooked is that, and maybe, maybe there's, um, I don't know if I've ever talked about this or thought through this real clearly, so I'm, I'm a little off the cuff here, so um, oh. I might regret some of this. Uh, I, there's this sense, I think, from a lot of, we, we, part of it is because we've, bro- we've broken up, as you were just saying, uh, the, the, the Trinitarian God into its component parts, let's say. And so we think of, uh, no, I'm not saying we've done that. I'm saying like, that's what I think progressive Christianity functionally does this. Right. And so Jesus is sort of the, 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 the good cop, God, the father, old Testament was bad cop Mm -hmm. and he's come to sort of appease. And that's the way they portray. Or or old Testament. God was kind of the, he's the old, he's the old guy who hasn't progressed to where he needs to be. Jesus kind of brings God sort of evolving. yeah. Yeah. So he's a little more morally bankrupt or something. And, and so it, here, here, part of what we have to recognize is God is acting as judge, and there's the judicial component, but without sacrificing the relational component of father-son. And so, and I say that to say that it's, I used to think of this too, I think, when I was younger, maybe before I had children. And I, I kind of had this idea that, that Jesus was the relatable part of God um, and, and the father in as much as he was the sort of wrath, the one with mm-hmm. the wrath that had to be uh, yeah. satisfied. He was a transcendent one. Yeah. And, and, I, and I kind of thought of it as um, Jesus did the dirty work. Now I'm a dad. And you watch your kids like now my kids like any number of times during the day you're going to hear some shrieks and screams and and I don't I'm not bothered by it I don't like you kind of know as a parent like the the oh no something actually just happened and the oh two siblings are fighting and trying to get my <laughs> attention like yeah. but but man I've I've done things like I remember a time where Daniel was I don't know he's probably 4 5 
and he shoved a he got a Lego stuck up in his nose, up and in, kind of high into the kind of nasal Jeez. cavity there, and it was bad enough we couldn't get to it. So we had to take him to the hospital, and they had a little thing they just and it's not a big complicated thing, but they stick it up and kind of hook it and bring it down. Well, Daniel was freaking out, and I had to like I I was the one in the room with the the nurse or doctor or yeah. whatever, and I had to basically strap him down to yeah, the bed yeah, while yeah. he's freaking out. And and they they did this thing. Well, he he needed to get the thing done, and I kind of helped. And and I think about what it's like in in much more dramatic and real ways than that to watch your children suffer, and not be, and and not intervene. Mm-hmm. As a parent, is a really painful thing. Yeah. And so I just want to bring out that the suffering of Christ was not singular to Christ. That there yeah. was a real suffering that the Father willingly endured in subjecting his son to the judicial wrath that he yeah. poured out. Yeah. Um, and so both are willfully enduring something that is painful, something that was um, beyond, you know, grievous um, to them. So there's real suffering in that for both Jesus yeah. as well as for the Father. Yeah. So to summarize here, I, I, in the last episode, we gave a lot of biblical data on uh uh, the the Bible explicitly talking about the atonement uh, and and pain for sins and uh, God's wrath um, in the in the context of Jesus dying on the cross and and leading up to that and such things um, and we've talked about a little bit of that terminology and uh, my point in pointing out these two straw men is if this is if this is if these are the arguments I don't think they're actually dealing with the biblical data. And I don't think they're actually dealing with the terminology that uh, is in the Bible mm-hmm. and that uh, historic Christianity has put forth for a, a very, very long time. Yeah. Um, so I would just challenge, I would just ask progressive Christians to, to take a look at those verses. And, and if you want to reject them, that's your prerogative. But we're saying you ha- you, to write them out or reorient them or diminish them in the context of... of uh, the emphasis that scripture wants to put on these things. I, I don't know that it, you could call it Christian mm. to do such things. Um, so that's our plea. One more thing in this area that I wanted to point out that I, that I found to be a really good, maybe sensitive um, example or, or kind of idea is um, a lot of times I think when I hear progressive Christians talked about justice, God's justice, or, or this idea of not not social justice, um, but but God's justice and dealing with humankind sin and all these sorts of things, is they only want to talk about restorative justice. Um, the idea that God is only interested in restoring the relationship, mm-hmm. not actually punishing uh, a sin in any way, and that's where they want to focus things. And, and I, I think God is restorative in many ways, but if that's all He is, I. I I don't think that's why I don't think it's a good God (laughs) that I'm going to say that I don't think God would be a good God. If all he was, was, was interested in restorative justice. Um, Well, I'm not sure progressive Christians really truly would want that God either though. You know I mean? Cause they certainly seem to think that legalism deserves, you know, a a measure of punishment Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) or, uh, and, and even, Let's say injustice, which is a big category that that yeah. is both biblical and and is central to the progressive mm-hmm. uh, kind of ideology. Yeah. Um, I don't. Yeah. 
Well, go ahead so, and trace that so out. So I want to try to frame this part in, in, a, in an example that could be helpful because this is a hard one to talk about. So, so think about a world where criminals ran wild and the cops were only allowed to gauge in restorative justice, which means they just simply, they simply ask people to be better, or they, they provide them with counseling, or uh, they simply, are, they, don't, they don't enact any punishment or correction mm -hmm. to uh, the criminal's uh, behavior at all, all right? Uh, but what if finally the cops started enacting punitive justice uh, where they punish criminals by imprisoning them um, and uh, charging them with crimes and putting them uh, through the court system and jail and, and, and those sorts of things. Who would, who would be okay and relieved by that? Who would, be, who would be, think that is a relief, that is a good thing? Society everybody, would. Everybody who lives in that world. Society is, The people who the criminals are, are, are sinning against, right? But who, uh, who wouldn't rejoice? The guilty, the, the guilty, the criminals. They would think that's that's terrible. This is you know that 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 ruins everything for them. That that's not right, right? The guilty would be enraged, right? And so and so, uh, Mike Winger, a pastor, I heard him give this example, and I think it's brilliant. He talked about working through domestic um, violence situations in his pastorate and in some parachurch ministries that he had worked in and dealing with, with guys who were uh, serial beaters of their wives. I mean, it was just a continuous thing that they were, that they were doing. And um, he said, you know, the, the public usually thinks these men are obviously guilty and that justice should be served for the abuse of their wives, for beating their wives and their kids in some instances. Uh, but he said, you know who doesn't think that? The men. The men. He said a lot of the times there's always who, there's always a reason, yeah, a story, an explanation. Yeah. Uh, you don't understand, yeah, and it should have been handled differently, and you should have been more patient. Yeah, the guy. He he, he said in a lot of cases these guys who were ser were serious, not not people who this was uh, an issue once or once uh, you know in their life, or people who were serial abusers. abusers of this kind of stuff. He said they would always, like you said, have excuses, but they thought they were great guys who didn't do anything bad at all. They, they thought that they were justified in some way for what they were doing. And they think that the, they, and you know who they think? They think the judges are crooked. They think the cops are unjust, that they painted them in a the wrong way, and that the system is too harsh and jacked up. Yeah. And, and even, even maybe in the, a better case scenario, maybe they don't think, maybe they recognize they did something wrong, but yeah. it was, that wasn't really them. That's not really who they are. Yeah. And that should be, you know, it was one time or it was, it was very occasionally, or I just, you know, it, but that's not, that's not what yeah. I do yeah. kind of thing. So and I know this is touchy, but, but the, the, the analogy here is when we only command God's justice to be restorative and not punitive, we're like criminals who are so obsessed with ourselves that we cannot admit that we might actually be the bad guys. Mm. Both restorative and punitive justice is necessary for God. Mm. I, I think that. Yeah. I, th I think the, the point I'm trying to push here is there's such a reaction or a, or a, or a, uh, a defiance of being painted as the guilty one in a lot of uh, progressive Christian thinking that I think it actually blocks them from thinking through God's punitive justice 
because yeah. the category of being guilty is so written out of their theology. Mm. I, and this goes back, this intermingles with some of the other doctrinal things we've touched on. If you have a weak doctrine of sin and an exaggerated doctrine of humanity in terms of our, our uh, goodness and a diminishing of our brokenness or sinfulness, you, this is how you end up at a place where feeling like God's wrath or the idea of God's wrath, much less the reality of it, are utterly unjustified. Yeah. And, and I, what we're saying is a God who doesn't have wrath towards, yeah. towards guilt like this. And punitive towards, justice. And, and, and who doesn't take punitive action. justice. Yeah, I mean, like we're saying, that's, that's not a God that, that, would, that could be good. Yeah. Who allows evil to run rampant. Yeah. So uh, a quote that I love from a book that we read together, um, that Childers quote, she quotes this particular scholar um, in her book who reviewed Brian McLaren, who's a, a leader in the progressive Christian movement on his denial of um, penal substitutionary atonement and God's wrath or punitive justice in this way. Um, this is what a guy named R. Scott Smith writes about that I that progressive Christian idea in McLaren about God's wrath not being uh, punitive or denying the atonement in this way. He says, McLaren's God strikes me as an enabler with poor boundaries who will let virtually anyone into his family, no matter how good and helpful they may seem. Enables, enablers are not moral heroes. He's talking about God there. I don't think we really want such a deficient God. Deep down, I think we want a God who is worthy of worship, who is perfect, not lacking in any good quality, pure in love, compassion, grace, and mercy, but also all-powerful, all-knowing, and holy, just, good, and in control, so that one day he will make right every wrong and deal decisively with and even eradicate evil. But McLaren's God cannot deal in any final way with evil. He simply allows evil to continue. Yeah, which is haunting. And, and here's the other thing, though, is that um, <laughs> I, I do think if you were to ask, I mean, certainly I have asked progressive Christians about things like this, um, and of course they want they want criminals punished. Mm -hmm. The difference is they want to decide what the standard of morality is, what the level of what level of evil rises to punishable. Yeah. It, like, so they want to retain the judge status to make those determinations yeah. it, rather than subordinate themselves to what God has revealed in his character and in his word uh, as his standard. And so we're either left with the changing, shifting standard of contemporary culture. And in this case, let's say the, the, the progressive movement, which they feel like they have the right they, they almost kind of feel a self-evident, well, these are the things that obviously need to be punished, but those things obviously don't. Yeah. Right? And so, and so they want to draw their own ca categories and distinctions of what is and isn't appropriate, what is and isn't morally yeah. um, uh, uh, fit yeah. to, to exist or to be, um, you know, to leave unpunished. Yeah. It goes back to, uh, the, again, all of, our, all of these theological um, tenets and doctrines, they're all interconnected. They're all interconnected. So this idea of, that James is talking about of justice in progressive Christian ideas, not resting in God in an objective sense, but actually resting in man's subjective sense, um, goes back to their doctrine of Scripture. Because Scripture does not have that objective authority 
in the way that it does for us. It, it, they're really operating in the way which is, uh, this is not new. I mean, the, uh, so I was just looking this up. Uh, a quote from a Greek philosopher, even before Jesus, who said, man is the measure of all things. I think that's the idea here. Yeah. Is that man is a measure of all things, including justice. Yeah. And it's a bad idea. I would say so. <laughs> I, I think it's a bad idea. I mean, idea. that's a really cruel idea because number one, it's changing constantly and men in the end make lousy gods. I think so. I think so. One, one last thing before we move off of the atonement is um, I think to write atonement out of Jesus' story is to ignore what he was trying to write into the story. Okay, I feel like progressive Christians, they uh, remember, I think we read a quote on this, how they don't want us to read the Bible literally. They want us to read it literarily. So they, they're really big on the, the literary aspects of the Bible. You know, uh, Rachel Held Evans wrote, uh, she actually did point out some great things in, in, t- in looking at the literary categories of scripture and emphasizing those. Which when it comes to hermeneutics, I mean, I just spent two hours this morning with six guys in our church who are going through a study on hermeneutics currently talking about the importance of things like genre analysis yes. and yeah. how to read the Bible yeah. with its literary yeah. uh, features in full view. Yeah. So, so, so we're, we're not we're, anti that. We're not against that. And I actually want to apply that to this, this, what we're talking about in atonement. If I'm looking at the literary emphasis and, and, and imagery that scripture gives us for certain ideas and categories, one of the, one of the greatest our biggest uh, literary devices and, and imagery used in the in the Bible is the is the concept of atonement and blood sacrifice. Mm-hmm. That's that's weaved throughout the story, the of entire scripture. sacrificial system that is so repudiated in many ways, or yeah. or uh, denigrated by yeah. so many as ancient, outdated, yeah. kind of uh, what um, uh, what's the word that's often used? Um, primitive. Yes, primitive. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but all of that is so central to, yeah. to to themes through the scriptures, which Jesus, I'm sure, is where you're going, right? Yeah. So, so take take the the use of of the, the the authors of scripture and how they they paint things. Let's say you don't even take these to be historical events. Let's say they're they're simply just literary, right? Okay. Um, we don't so take that. Myth. We take them to be both. Yeah, they're let, mythological let, stories. Let, that, let, that, that let's carry say truth. let's say the gospel's a myth. Okay. Right. And the and the the authors of the gospels were uh, were painting you this picture of Jesus. What were they trying to get across in the literary tools that he used? Think about when John uh, he he's the most emphasized in this. When where does he place Jesus's death during Passover? Yeah, that's not an accident. That is a that is an author emphasizing something that he wants you to draw a connection to. Mm-hmm. That in the same way that the story of Israel rested on the Passover, mm-hmm. which was what? What was the Passover? Passover is a when God was going to slay all the firstborn in Egypt, except for those who sacrificed a lamb and spread the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their homes. Uh, so that when the angel of death came through the land and saw the blood on the doorposts, he would pass over those people, those families, and spare them the the death that would have been coming. Spare otherwise. them the wrath of the right. angel of death. Yeah. So the gospel authors are intentionally, as 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 uh, as writers, making a connection to the imagery of the Passover and the. The, the sacrifice to uh, take upon 
God's wrath mm-hmm. and Jesus' death. Yeah. That's a literary device that's being used. I believe that's a historical fact. Uh, fact. Right. But it, it doesn't it, make it's, it... It's really God authoring that into the story. Yeah. But but even if it it's not, wasn't, you're saying uh, yeah. that they, they were trying to make that point and they were drawing One, that. 100%. That Jesus' death is the ultimate fulfillment of the original yes. Passover. Yes, yes. And I think the imagery of a lamb is very important. Yeah. Because a lamb is not required for a sin sacrifice. If you if you look at the scriptures, yeah, it could be, be a bull, it could be a goat, it could be all all these things. Um, a lamb was specifically to take away God's wrath at Passover. Mm. It was only a lamb that could take away that. And how is Jesus portrayed? He's portrayed as a lamb. This is Isaiah fifty three. This is the imagery that the Bible is weaving through. And Jesus Himself and those who uh, who were tasked with promoting His story intentionally used literary devices, we believe in historical fact, but even if you don't take that, to emphasize the fact that Jesus was not only a sin sacrifice to atone for sins, but was a lamb who took upon himself the wrath of God to avert um, that on those who would trust and, and, and be in uh, him. And again, that's the, the wrath of God, not the emotional bad temper of a flying off the handle God, but rather the judicial wrath yeah. of God, the the necessary consequences, the just consequences of guilt and sin against a yeah. holy God. So if I apply the, if I, if I hone in on the, on only on the literary devices and those sorts of things trying to be brought about and through the scriptures, which I think, a pro- you still can't ignore the motif and theme. Of no, the I actually moment. think it, I actually think it, it, uh, it heightens this. Yeah. I think it actually, that hermeneutic um, which I'm f- fully for. I just want to put more stuff into it. Yeah, sure. Um, actually makes a case for the atonement uh, that's greater than just the historical realities. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that, that, I think that's where I want to stop on atonement cool. and talking through atonement. Okay. Uh, I don't know how far we're going to get with this. I don't want to go too far today. But on Jesus and the gospel, I, I, we kind of did this in a weird format. We talked about the atonement before we talked about Jesus and the gospel and those sorts of things. But I think because that, I think that the, the last topic gets in the way of this one before you can actually get to it. So just responding to a couple things about Jesus, who he is, what he said, those sorts of things. I said we, this is a, I mean, this is a softball of a, of a quote that we that we quoted in a couple episodes ago, but I, I just can't. Churches can't are known not, for softball. Church, I can't not respond to churches this. Churches play softball. Man. This uh, this progressive writer writes this, uh, and we quoted this a couple weeks ago. He said, "I don't think faith equals a set of propositions. And in fact, if you go back to the Gospels, I mean, Jesus never asked anyone to believe anything as a propositional truth about God or heaven or whatever." Jesus called people to a way of life. He said, follow me, be my disciples. And it was to a way of life, a way of being in the world that is a different thing to faith defined as a set of intellectual propositions. Now, before, before, I, before we correct that, he's not wrong in that Jesus called people to a way of life. He's <laughs> no. not wrong that people... No, but it's where we started, people right? To faith. It's, it's this and. But this is, this is the same, I think, the same uh, problem that you run into with progressive Christians with the atonement is they point this out, but think that that somehow negates uh, other aspects, right? So in the same way that, that we, that they emphasize the Christus Victor, uh, we can emphasize that too, but it, it is irrelevant to, to blocking out the, the uh, atonement for sins mm-hmm. aspect, right? Uh, we can agree with this statement without saying 
uh, without saying that this. Uh, well, I yeah, we can't really agree with it. We can no, agree we with portions of it, yeah, but not to the exclusion of intellectual propositions. Yeah, that Jesus, uh, Jesus never asked anyone to believe anything as a propositional truth about God. <laughs> okay, let's just the the opening chapter of Mark. One of the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he comes on the scene. Mark 1, 14 through 15, he says, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, this is a quote from Jesus, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus starts his ministry by asking people, or not, I don't think he's asking, he's saying, <laughs> he's saying uh, commanding, repent and believe in the gospel. Yeah. Now that's more than propositional, but it's propositional. Yeah. That's a that's a that's a content. Yeah, no nobody nobody worth anything within Christian thinking would say that the the gospel or Jesus is only about propositional truth, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But it's not less than propositional yeah. truth. I just th- this is a co- this is a common thing of pitting those two things against each other, the right. propositional and the personal, the right. the spiritual and the and the the doctrine like uh, I just think this is low hanging fruit um, and I and I think pitting those two things together is not respectful to uh, the message of the scriptures yeah and um, I, I we just had to start off with that one yeah you know I feel like that's where I want to finish today is a little low hanging fruit <laughs> I, I actually don't want to go any farther <laughs> I, I'm uh, uh, okay. We're going to talk about Jesus and his message a little bit next week and finish up our thoughts on progressive Christianity. Yeah. So uh, thanks for listening, and James has the final word. Oh, man, that's a lot of pressure because I didn't know it was coming. Well, I, I, it's like you just kind of I should rethink that. wrapped up. I should rethink that because he tends to have the final Let me just draw words. our attention back to Flint. No, well, never mind. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Y'all have a good week. All right. See you. Thank you.